part of my goal and and purpose as a scholar should be to connect those those stories and to see the ways in which we can better understand how colonialisms replicate Mm -hmm. and, and perpetuate around the world and model themselves after one another. Welcome to this episode of The Circled Square, the podcast where we talk about teaching Buddhism in higher education. My name is Sarah Richardson from the Ho Center for Buddhist Studies at the University of Toronto. In this episode, we sat down with Natalie Avalos, a Chancellor's Postdoctoral Fellow in the Department of Ethnic Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder, where she'll also be joining the department as an assistant professor next year. We sat down with Natalie remotely, meeting over video conference tech while she was in Colorado and I was in Toronto, and we talked about her teaching. She's a junior scholar, so she's not done as much teaching as some of our other guests, but she has thought really deeply and in interesting ways about why she teaches. She wants to give her students ways to transform themselves and their societies and sees the potential for this in Buddhism too. So enjoy our interview with Natalie Avalos about anti-colonial teaching and Buddhism. So my name is Natalie Avalos and I'm currently a chancellor's postdoc in the ethnic studies department at uh, well, CU Boulder. Sometimes folks call it UC Boulder, but it's really CU Boulder. Um, and so my training is actually in religious studies. And my primary field is Native American and Indigenous religious traditions, but my secondary is actually Tibetan Buddhism. So I have kind of a unique training and a unique approach to, to teaching and thinking about Buddhism, especially in diaspora. Yeah, this is a fascinating combination. So can you tell me a bit about how this came to be? How did you become a scholar who specializes in both indigenous religions and Tibetan Buddhism? Yeah, I think uh, that's a good question. I get that question a lot. And I think it it came so organically as as a a young person when I was um, going to school and doing my undergraduate work, I was really... um, interested just personally in Buddhism. I had been studying it more as like a personal journey, uh, but I had also been steeped in social justice circles and found myself getting frustrated in some of the, I grew up in the Bay Area, and so mm-hmm. it's some of the social justice circles there, there is sometimes real um, obstacles around working through interpersonal conflicts, working through um, conflicts around more material expressions of resistance and and political transformation versus internal, maybe more personal, even, you know, uh, spiritual transformations. And so I was thinking a lot about that as an undergrad and I started to explore like, well, what is it that we can do to really address some of our structural issues? Because as I started to think more about social justice, it's not just about local Mm -hmm. uh, problems, but really deeply tethered to larger structural problems around our particular expressions of contemporary colonialism, really uh, contemporary expressions of, of um, capitalism and neoliberalism that have shaped the entire world. And and so thinking beyond just the domestic U.S. And, and as I started to deepen my studies of Buddhism, I realized that 
for me as someone of native descent, so I'm Chicana and Apache, meaning uh, my mom's from Mexico, so I'm of Mexican descent, and she's she's Nahua in Spanish. My dad's Apache and Mexican American, and so I always thought of myself as someone that was invested in native rights and indigenous rights, but. I think increasingly in the last decade or so, uh, folks in my position have been thinking in terms of, well, what does it mean to build solidarity with folks around the world that are experiencing similar uh, sorts of structures, forms of dispossession? And so it became obvious to me as I started to understand Tibetan history that what was happening there was very similar and was actually been modeled off of Mm -hmm. the uh, dispossession that took place in the Americas and that is still taking place. Mm And, and so I didn't quite understand what my project would be as an undergrad, but as I moved into grad school, it started to come together. And I realized that um, even though I was really, um, mostly interested in exploring indigenous approaches and indigenous methods that I wanted to bring in a Tibetan story, partly because in the ethnic studies conversations or even American studies conversations around uh, the the legacies of colonialism and the legacies of racialization and marginalization happening not just in the U.S., but in Oceania, Africa, Middle East, parts of Asia. Tibet wasn't a part of that story. And I, it actually really bothered me because mm-hmm. I felt like it should be. Mm-hmm. And that it and it wasn't especially since because, it's still happening now. I mean, yeah, it's, yes. it's current. Yes, and and I think one of the reasons why um, it wasn't legible in that space was partly because there was so such little public awareness. But of course, then realizing that that. Um, marginal public awareness was intentional, right? And so mm-hmm. I felt like, well, if I'm one of the few people in um, in religious studies doing quote unquote more ethnic studies type things, you know, bringing in these questions of power and legacies of coloniality, then maybe as a practitioner as a Buddhist practitioner, maybe part of my goal and, and purpose as a scholar should be to connect those, those stories and to see the ways in which we can better understand how colonialisms replicate mm-hmm. and, and perpetuate around the world and model themselves after one another, but also to shine a light on the Tibetan struggle for sovereignty. And, mm-hmm. and so that's kind mm-hmm. of where, where it went. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so, and one of your uh, goals in teaching is to teach about decolonialization or decolonialism. Yeah. So what does decolonization mean? What can it mean or what could yeah. it be? How, how can yeah. we help our listeners to understand what this idea could be? Yeah. So um, I explain decolonization to students as the undoing of colonization and so many uh, different registers, meaning so we can think of it as kind of state project, right? In a political context. Well, it means to literally reclaim your sovereignty, to reclaim your own uh, expression of governance, right? And to 
redefine your nation state through your own terms, through really the indigenous terms or the terms of, of those that have been colonized. But it, there are so many other dimensions that I think have been percolating in grassroots circles and third world women of color literature and in ethnic studies literature in the last really three, four decades about um, the more somatic effects, really the affect, Mm -hmm. the affective dimension um, of colonial legacies, things like addressing historical trauma, things like addressing the uh, internalized racism, right? So decolonization could mean uh, the way that, that I pursued in my own research is what are the ontological effects? Mm. How is it that people have internalized power to such a degree that they believe they may no longer have it or they lose track of how they may uh, gain it again? These sorts of things. Even um, decolonization could mean how we view and value people's knowledge systems, really denaturalizing all the hierarchies created by colonial projects, whether it's in academia, right? All the knowledge production done there that has done the ideological work of supporting colonial projects, but also the forms of racialization and dispossession that we still see as very naturalized that we don't necessarily often question. And so part of the goal and work of decolonizing is to question, Mm -hmm. denaturalize, really challenge those hierarchies and ask, well, how is it that something like um, patriarchy and racialization operate together? How is it that... um, hetero uh, patriarchy and white supremacy operate together and then uh, domesticate and and um, critique and constrain gender and sexuality. I mean, all these components, thinking of them as is interrelated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so in a piece you recently wrote for Religious Studies News, um, you wrote about making the mechanisms of power visible for students. Yeah. So, yeah. which, and it was, it's a really wonderful piece um, that we'll link to in our show notes at the end. Um, but how, which, which are mechanisms of power that we can help to make visible for our students, especially in a university or college mm-hmm. setting where in some sense that we're already constrained, we're, we're in a built hierarchy <laughs> that, already yeah. presupposes many of those uh, power structures and has naturalized yeah. them. So what what is the ways that you've found or strategies you've found to, to denaturalize those mechanisms of power when you're working within them? Yeah. Um, it's something that I explain to students right off is that Just as you mentioned, in some ways we're in the belly of the beast, right? We're like we're deeply we're deeply implicated in the system while in academia, but also thinking about really just the assumptions held in knowledge production. And so I sometimes start classes, and this is all classes, whether it's 
uh, more of a religious studies general course, like a, a survey course on religion and healing or lived religions. Um, mm-hmm. I have a survey course on on earth justice, which is about indigenous stewardship, or even the, the course I shared with you about, it's supposed to focus more on socially engaged Buddhism. Starting off the class discussion, thinking about the structures attached to colonial projects and how they produce knowledge, Mm -hmm. how the power laden within these projects is one of its goals is producing certain kinds of knowledges. And then so what is it that these knowledges do to uh, discipline peoples and um, perpetuate hierarchies of, of power? Right. Mm-hmm. And so for maybe a slightly more advanced class, I might share a chapter or two of Linda Tuway Smith's Decolonizing Methodologies. This is a book that was published by a Maori scholar. In 1999, actually, I just went to a 20th uh, 20th year anniversary reception for this book at the American Studies Conference. And it was so deeply influential in Indigenous studies, partly because it talked about the colonial legacy of research with Indigenous peoples and how the Enlightenment Project essentially was aiming to come up with and theorize how to manage peoples in a colonial era, that this was one of its its goals. And so we're living with the legacy of that. And so it really discusses, for one, how this has become so deeply naturalized, but also how we can denaturalize it and think, rethink our approaches to indigenous people's knowledges, to think about basically all non-Western people's knowledges and systems and to take their worldviews seriously. And and to so really asking students at the start to think about, reflect, and unpack the assumptions they may have of non-Western, non-Christian traditions. Right? What are the assumptions they're holding about them? And generally, we've deeply internalized these primitivist assumptions. Mm -hmm. We've deeply internalized these ideas around non-Western, non-Christian peoples as having more rudimentary, more um, base level, primal expressions of religion and in philosophy. Mm -hmm. And so when we unpack that at the start, that becomes a touch point to just refer back to as we begin to get into um, and explore, well, what are these religions and philosophies? What are their ideas? And let's continue to think about how we might take them seriously as you know, viable options of, of reality and to also challenge them to think, well, Maybe there is more than one reality. Maybe there is more than one way of being in the world. Maybe there's more than one way of theorizing power. Maybe there's more than one way of theorizing justice. And so that becomes the ongoing discussion that's threaded throughout. Mm-hmm. And to support that, so you talked about um, uh, in in one kind of reading, but what what other kinds of readings for exposing this in the study of Buddhism have you found useful? Because certainly, I mean, the study of Buddhism has also inherited this legacy of of a hierarchy yeah. of what's authentic, original Buddhism, and what's yeah. later and uh, 
perhaps not as as true Buddhism, right? Which is built into the language of the of the discipline for over 150 years. So, how do we help um, our students to see around that? Yeah. So, for me, what I've done in um, really the short and somewhat few opportunities that I've had to teach Buddhism is I sometimes just offer up this one reading and this is the one um, by on let me see let me pull it up on socially engaged Buddhism and what that looks like and mm-hmm. it's titled All Buddhism is Engaged Thich Nhat Hanh in the Order of Interbeing and it's by Patricia Hunt Perry and Lynn Fine and this is a reading from a larger anthology on engaged Buddhism in the West and what I love about it is that it's an opportunity to think about how Buddhism is actually um, positioned as an anti-colonial project Mm. And that if we think of Buddhist praxis as actually anti-colonial praxis, right, that its potential for political transformation is um, pretty profound. And what I like about that piece, too, and in pairing it, so I've paired it with a couple of other pieces, um, one by bell hooks on her experience as a Buddhist and a black woman, right? And um, that piece, let me pull up the name of it. That, that piece is called Contemplation and Transformation. That's in Buddhist Women on the Edge. She also has a fantastic interview with Thich Nhat Hanh called Building a Community of Love. And these pieces are able to break down well how is it that buddhism is not just this exotic practice that exists over there somewhere over there but it's something that is very relevant to all of us in a contemporary moment of ongoing colonialism right and that it can address domestic issues that we deal with here in terms of racialization gender disparity, right? misogyny, class marginalization, all these things that we're contending with and that are expressing themselves in other parts of the world in, in slightly different ways. But that we can think of Buddhist praxis, Buddhist philosophy and praxis as really a kind of um, praxis of response, right? response mm-hmm. to these legacies of colonialism that it, are structures, ideological, um, and also deeply internalized. And so tethering that for students, making it relevant, you know, what I love about the interview Bell Hooks has with Thich Nhat Hanh is they discuss Martin Luther King. And in the U.S., students are very versed in King's legacy, right? It's it's so legible to them. And so bringing in, there's actually also a fantastic interview with Oprah and Thich Nhat Hanh. Mm -hmm. And I like to think of Oprah as kind of a great American guru in some ways. And so that discussion also touches on Martin Luther King and his legacy. And so I think it's so important for students to think about how their own history in the U.S. is actually deeply interlinked with the 
legacies of colonialism around the world, what happened in Vietnam, what's currently happening in Tibet, what's happening in other parts of the world, that even like Indian nationalism happening now, right? That they're interlinked. They're not separate. These political projects are all responding to one another. And how might we think of Buddhism as a very profound response to that, that's addressing the somatic needs of those living with very violent legacies, but also tethering people together. Um, what I, I find so powerful about the piece on, on Thich Nhat Hanh's Order of Inner Being is the philosophy of interdependence at work there. Mm. And it really, I find that students respond to it so positively because it allows them to reconceptualize themselves in an interdependent world. Part of what they feel so frustrated with when we talk about legacies of colonialism is that they often feel so powerless. And when you can re-envision yourself in a metaphysic where you are deeply interconnected with others, then you no longer feel alone. You no longer feel so powerless. You realize that you have strength in numbers. It's like you can totally re-envision the possibilities of power. Mm-hmm. And I think putting all of those together, you know, over the course of multiple conversations can be really beneficial for students. Mm-hmm. It's really wonderful how you talk about teaching your students to feel, to recognize themselves as interconnected. Um, Is there, are there other tools you've found useful for helping students to recognize that interconnection? Um, How do you cultivate that in in your classes or in your assignments? So, yeah, that's a really good question because I've been, I've been really experimenting with that one. Mm -hmm. The fact that, um, So my approach to Buddhism, teaching Buddhism in the classroom, I think is really influenced by indigenous studies in the sense that, you know, indigenous studies seeks to really center indigenous epistemologies and center the voices of practitioners, people in the community. And so when I am teaching Buddhism, I remind students, okay, well, these epistemologies may be different from what you're used to, right? From the reality that you're used to. But the exercise here and and the goal is to imagine what it might be like for this reality, for this metaphysic to be real, right? Mm -hmm. And so asking them to do things like imagine what it would be like you know, close your eyes, imagine what it would be like if you could feel the feelings of the people around you. And of course, little by little students say, well, actually, I do feel the feelings of people around me. And I do pick up on the emotions of my friends. And I do. And I, and so then I take it a step further. Well, what if your health and well-being was contingent and interconnected to those around you? And then they end up eventually saying, well, actually, yeah, I, I realized that when the people around me are feeling joyful, I, it's infectious. I feel it too. Right. So getting them to see the ways in which they're not so discreet and bounded just mm-hmm. on an emotional somatic level, 
that I've also showed, I like to show lots of media clips. So I've showed students um, birds in murmuration. Oh, yeah. It's, Flying it's, as a big and flock. It's, it's, yes. And what I find productive about this or the time the the couple times that I've used it as an experiment is that students are just totally um just enraptured by the visual right it's so visually stunning and it actually puts students in a slightly meditative um mindset so I just asked them okay well watch this video it's two minutes and feel into your body. Just check in and think about what you're feeling as you're watching this. And when I ask them to share after, generally, and, and what I found is that it's often athletes that speak up <laughs> first and share. So they say, oh, well, I felt like I was flying too. And I was in unison with them too. And it made me feel so joyful and free and open. And, and other students have said, oh, I felt like almost like I was dancing. I, I felt the movement within me. And so, again, it helps them to think about the ways in which they themselves, as what they perceive to be discrete bodies, are actually so deeply interconnected with the phenomena, not just the human persons around them, but in indigenous context, we talk about other than human persons. So thinking about potential immaterial beings, even in a Buddhist context, right? Those persons, those deities, they are with you. They may be ever present and that you may respond to them and and that really you as a body can be interpellated and, and are connected with them on some level. And so those exercises, I think, help students think beyond their um their socialization <laughs> of mm-hmm. being just um material only mm-hmm. and to really feel into their own immaterial somatic life and and that there is a kind of natural intelligence that comes from that somatic life and really trying to dig deeper there as we go on mm-hmm. yeah Um, In your course on lived religion, Mm -hmm. which sounds really interesting, um, you help students to study religion that's going on around them, send them out into the field, they become ethnographers and researchers. So what does this course foreground and what do you hope students can take away from it? So my goal for that course is for them to get to see how messy religion on the ground is in praxis and allow them to think past. I think um, not all students, but many students come in with the assumption that religion is just institutionalized religion. Mm -hmm. And it's going to church. They have a very kind of Western Christian conception of what (laughs) practices, belief is. And, and what, um, by the way, what describes most of your students? Are they mostly young people from Colorado or, and you've also so, taught in the Northeast as well, right? Yeah. So I developed these classes when I was teaching at Connecticut College in the mm-hmm. Northeast. And so it was lots of students, uh, mostly, I assumed that I was going to get mostly white middle-class Protestant students. And what 
the 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 truth was that there was a, a small percentage of that, but it was actually mostly ethnic white students of Catholic background, mm. so Italian American, Irish American, Polish American, mm. um, even you know Greek American. That was actually the bulk of my students, uh, ranging from working class, middle class, upper upper class. There were there was an increasing number of diverse, underrepresented students. So almost a third of the student mm-hmm. body. And so that allowed us to actually have really dynamic discussions around mm-hmm. religiosity and what it looks like on the ground. Yeah, and they must have had also pretty strong inherited ideas of what religion was that you got to work with, right? but also work against, I'd assume. Yes. Well, and one of the major uh, roadblocks that I wanted to address is the assumption that institutionalized religion is always coercive, problematic, um, and misusing power, right? And that institutionalized or even, you know, more generally religious spaces could be um, revolutionary and empowering and even anti-colonial and do really provocative things, right? To bring communities together. So, So really pushing back against these assumptions. And so... You know, that course would include like Pentecostalism in Latino and African-American communities. It includes uh, spiritualist movements in 19th century U.S., right? It includes um, Haitian voodoo uh, practice in response to police brutality in New York. You know, like really diverse kinds of, of expressions. And, and there we would talk about, of course, uh, Native American religion, things like um, the reclamation of peyote uh, in the Native American church as a means to support Native veterans, right? Healing from historical trauma or even talking about in a Buddhist context, linking um, what I did was actually I, I linked that um Thich Nhat Hanh reading on the order of interbeing with Martin Luther's Martin Luther King's letter from the Birmingham jail, right? So really talking about the ways in which contemporary U.S. civil rights expressions were, could speak to what was happening in Vietnam and how they were uh, connected and in some, some ways very coextensive. So helping them see the ways in which religion was potentially a radical place of praxis <laughs> and mm-hmm. and um, even community community building, which is something that they hadn't thought about so much. So ultimately that class was supposed to get them was turning religion on its head and to get them to think about religion in really powerful productive ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but also problematizing, you know, thinking about the uh, whole fallout after 9-11 and the use of the veil as a kind of political and religious protest. Mm-hmm. Um, the ways in the, the struggles among uh, American Jews over the creation of Israel and the contemporary uh, discussions and really major contentions over um 
how contemporary American Jews, where they sit in the project of, of Israel. I mean, it's a really complicated issues that we're still dealing with, you know, today, that there are no real clear cut answers to. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I've, I have asked students to go out and talk to religious communities to think about their own religious history, to try and get to know and understand people in these communities as making meaning out of their life through their praxis and, and asking them, well, what is it that it's doing for you? You know, what is it that's so powerful about your religious community? If, if, if you wanted other folks to join you, what would you tell them? You know, so encouraging them to ask questions about why religion in practice was so powerful individually, but maybe even communally, you know, what is it about this community that's um, drawing people in? And ultimately, I think that it really challenges students to get out of their comfort zones. They don't necessarily want to go out and talk to other people. (laughs) They don't want to ask questions uh, 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 to religious practitioners, but when they do, they really, part of the goal that I initially didn't even intend, but I started to see after teaching it a couple of times, is that they feel empowered by asking questions mm-hmm. and by making connections with other people and by thinking deeply about their own religious history and really kinds of existential questions that come with it. You know, like, well, what is my purpose here? Mm-hmm. What should I be doing? What kinds of ethics are important to me? What, what kind of meaning can I and should I make out of my life and that they come away feeling enriched by attempting to answer some of those questions, Mm -hmm. if not for themselves, at least attempting to make um, some meaning out of those questions with the community that they're working with. Yeah. And were they, were they working with communities in pairs? Were they working in small groups? How did you actually do this effectively with your students? I I asked them to do it individually, Individually, which I think is probably even scarier for them. (laughs) And, uh, but I'm sure, I think in some ways when they were going out into the field, right, that, that, uh, they would go in pairs, um, not all, all, but I'm sure some did. But I think ultimately, you know, the the goal was for them to figure out on their own how to negotiate this community, how to ask questions, get to know folks, return a couple of times, build a relationship. And, mm-hmm. and that's actually part of an indigenous pedagogy, too, that's always underlining what I'm doing is that you have to build relationships with people in the community. You have to um, understand people in the community as um, being experts in their own experience and trying to translate that expertise and take it seriously and really respect it and value it. Mm -hmm. And so it forces students to reevaluate their own cynicism and uh, even maybe some sense of discomfort they may feel around religious believers 
right? Mm-hmm. If they are not believers themselves. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you, you, dis, you w- might describe the power of teaching about religions and other religions as also uh, the potential transformation of your individual students, right? That they might start to yeah. see their own selves as contingent and, you know, a complex byproduct of a set of circumstances. So that's, that's a yeah. huge um, yeah. teaching goal that that yeah. embracing there. It's great. <laughs> that is. Yeah. yeah, that is. I realize. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask you who were formative teachers for you in this, in the path that has brought mm. you to this place so far? What were, I mean, all of us who are in higher education have had many teachers. So mm. um, what are some teaching moments from your own life, from your own teachers that really kind of solidified for you things you wanted to do or transformed you in some way? So you mean in terms of both academic and maybe even personal? Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Academic and personal. We're really we're we're really bridging both here. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when I was working on my undergrad, I was a returning student. So I was an undergrad in my mid 20s. And one of my aunts gave me Bell Hooks book all about love. And I hadn't read much of Bell Hooks before, but it became my favorite book. It was such a profound book. And I, I learned, of course, that she was Buddhist. And then I started reading so much more of her work. And I had I had a context for who she was because I had, as a teenager, read um, this bridge called My Back, which was that really fantastic anthology by Sheree Moraga and Gloria Anzaldúa. And my older sister was in school. And so she would bring back whatever she was reading and I would read it. And I was really inspired by Gloria Anzaldúa's Borderlands as well, which was this kind of feminist take on reclaiming indigenous uh, spirituality. And it was so, um, powerful for me. And I remember meeting her (laughs) as a young person, as a teenager, because she she came and spoke at my sister's college and she was just so down to earth and friendly and really as, you know, I must've been 17, 18 years old when I met her. And I remember thinking, wow, this person is, um, they're locally famous at that time. This was like the mid nineties and they're talking about these really profound things that are relevant to me. And maybe it's possible that I could do something like that because I couldn't imagine it before. Mm -hmm. And I needed to have some models in my life. So when I was doing, you know, the reading in my mid twenties and in college reading what bell hooks was doing. I was like, Oh, so she's tethering her religious experience, kind of like Gloria Ansel do it, like tethering her religious experience and world into her social justice work and her, her work on really healing herself and, and the intent to heal others and all of us. And I just thought, wow, okay, so that's possible too. And so these were models for me to think about, well, what's possible in the classroom, what's possible in in social justice circles. And so I was lucky enough to have um, 
really interesting classes. As an undergrad, I was at UC Berkeley and I took this fantastic class by this woman named Eleanor Roche. And she worked in cognitive science, but she did some work on Buddhism and Cogsci. And she, uh, I forget the title of the class, but it was like Buddhism in the mind and in treating the mind as the lab. And so we learned all these different techniques of meditation. And it was like a 300 person class. Mm-hmm. And she had such interesting readings that were mostly Buddhist studies readings. And I was so inspired. I thought, wow. Okay. So taking religious studies material outside of religious studies into this really applied context. Mm. And it was packed and I was so inspired and my classmates were so inspired. And again, I thought, well, okay, so that's possible. So I think it was really building those models. And then when I went off to grad school, I worked with Inez Talamantes, who's an Apache Chicana scholar, and she worked on the girls' puberty ceremony and she was really interested in indigenous theory. And this, you know, was still a somewhat radical idea 10 years ago, uh, 12 years ago when I started grad school. And so I learned so much from her vision of what was possible in the academy. And then, you know, I worked with Jose Cabezon as well in, in Buddhist studies. And what I appreciated so much was the way in which he modeled power every day in the classroom and with his students. And he was just so incredibly judicious judicious and fair and generous in the way he worked with us and supported us. And even though I wasn't someone that was interested in studying texts in the way that he <laughs> did, he was really patient with me and open to my ideas. And and I think I was inspired by all these these mm-hmm. folks. They they helped me think about what's possible, what I can do in the classroom, what I can do to, to take what's traditional out of a traditional context and think about applied context for Buddhist praxis, for indigenous religion, and really translating it in a kind of social justice conversation that could be potentially more productive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and so you spoke a bit earlier about how you've changed in disciplinary boundaries over time and yeah. your, through your training and now in your job. So yeah. you're now going to be working, teaching in an ethnic studies department. So yes. what, how do you think it, it what's going to change about teaching about religion and social justice, but from an ethnic studies lens, what's the, what's the potential and freedom there for you? And um, where do you think that could lead? Yeah. So I've been thinking about that so much because I'm so excited to build different sorts of classes in that context where I feel like I'm I'm going to interpolate ethnic studies, which has a tendency to have, uh, well, it has a very Marxist history. So it has a very materialist history. And the times that it does deal with spirituality is generally in a context of like these third world uh, women of color feminists like uh, Bell Hooks or Gloria Anseldua, Shereen Maraga, or even Angela Davis's incredible work. And so thinking about 
their work as one expression of religion and spirituality, but trying to bring in some of religious studies logics, right? Um, more complicated, nuanced definitions of religion versus even spirituality. <laughs> and it's complicating the, the kind of um, binary that might perpetuate there for students. Again, challenging some of the same issues that come up in religious studies classes, challenging the idea that uh, religion and all of its expressions is just coercive and problematic, mm-hmm. right? Um, thinking about religion is a space of potential radical liberation, you know, bringing in um, text around liberation theology. I think that's been probably the most profound, um, I think, influence for students. I had lots of students already undergrads, surprisingly, that were um, versed in Marxist <laughs> theory, and they were very reluctant to embrace religiosity or to, to think about religiosity as, as positive. And, and so the bringing in uh, liberation theology has been so productive. But thinking about Buddhism in that context, I think the ways in which Buddhism has been appropriated and, and to contemporary U.S. culture and like the tech world for productivity and even like K through 12 in terms of mindfulness and being um, helping students with behavioral issues or stress. These are definitely positive things, but to me, it's important to provide a philosophical grounding. I think what ethnic studies hasn't done as well is to provide a robust philosophical exploration of these religious traditions and even quote unquote kind of spiritual genealogies that are rooted. Um, So one of the most popular books in the last year, two years in social justice circles has been this book by Adrian Marie Brown called Emergent Strategies. And it's been so productive because, you know, she's this social justice activist. She's been working in social justice circles for probably over a decade. And she draws on what she calls Octavia Butler's theology. And in my mind, Octavia Butler is a sci-fi, African-American sci-fi writer. And in, in my reading of Octavia Butler, what she's doing is incredibly Buddhist, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Her, her work is very Buddhist. And when we don't name that and say that and say, well, let's look at the genealogy and let's look at the philosophy here. We're at risk of kind of floating around without a real good foundation. We need that philosophical foundation. Not that that is a static place because we see the ways in which it's being riffed upon and it's dynamic. And and again, it helps students see the ways in which religion changes over time and that praxis can meet the needs of the community wherever they are, right? But we need that philosophical grounding in order to think about how we can improvise in informed ways, Mm. right? And also think about the ways in which we can tether contemporary U.S. struggles over power 
racialization, marginalization, to struggles around the world. You know, what's so productive about ethnic studies analytics to me in, in marrying them, you know, with um, religious studies content, like, you know, a Buddhist studies course, is, well, if we think about something like settler colonialism, right, it helps us think about settler colonial theory argues, well, colonialism isn't just an event that happens at one point of time and then we're just dealing with the kind of legacy. It's something that's ongoing, that's continually negotiated. It's a structure. It's an ideology. It exists in our justice system, in our laws, in uh, the ways in which our government is even uh, theorized. Right? Mm -hmm. So all the ideologies that exist in the structures around us, economic trade, the the sorts of dynamics that are existing between polities. So colonialism is really embedded in all of these things. The ideologies that are a legacy of them are also embedded, racialization, gendered um, disparities, all these things. So when we marry these analytics and bring them into, say, a Buddhist studies conversation, we could talk about the incredible philosophical history and then how might we deepen what's happening in, say, Thich Nhat Hanh's uh, community, the order of interbeing, the way in which they're theorizing Buddhism as a praxis that's potentially anti-colonial. In my sense, you know, if if we say, well, it's anti-colonial, it's a way to resist colonial forces, you know, structures and ideologies, but even to move further and say, well, it's potentially decolonial by saying it can help us ameliorate the after effects, mm. the ways in which we've internalized power and we need to re-theorize power because part of what decolonization does, to touch on what we talked about earlier, is to think about new kinds of futures. And so in this context, the Buddhist studies class could really help students to rethink what a future possibility. What does a more just future look like? And how might we theorize that together? And that that could be some of the finalizing exploration, the finalizing praxis. And, And I think it helps students end on a positive note because it's so demoralizing and overwhelming to think about how, um, you know, coloniality appears so totalizing. And when we can find the interruptions, the places of disruption, the places where we can uh, redefine ourselves and the world, then we, we have a way out. <laughs> yep. A way to a different world. Yeah. Yeah. In the context of um, helping students to recognize their own histories and their own biases and their own values. Um, You've developed a kind of assignment that I think sounds really interesting. Can you tell us a little bit more about your decolonial autobiography assignment and what you ask students to do? So, um, yes. So this assignment was born out of actually a struggle that took place in the classroom, which was that Um, I had an international student that was very resistant 
to thinking about themselves as complicit in settler colonialism. Mm. And the reason why, and this is a major debate in settler colonial theory, is they felt like, well, I'm coming from a non-Western country. And even though I have some relative wealth and privilege there, when I come to the U.S., I'm marginalized. And so how is it that I could somehow be complicit in um, indigenous dispossession by being here? (laughs) And so it became a really provocative discussion in the class. And this was an advanced uh, class I had on global indigeneities. It looks Mm -hmm. at global indigenous movements and really a seminar class for juniors and seniors and so I decided to come up with this assignment. I did some research and I pulled from multiple sources, actually. So this this assignment is kind of cobbled together from, from multiple places. And it really asked students to just think about their own personal history on these lands in the Americas, whether they were raised somewhere here in the U.S., somewhere in Canada, somewhere else in the Americas. And what is the history of that particular land base. For one, what's their family history? When did their family arrive and get there? What's their relationship like with that place? And then what is the place's history? And this helps us think about place as having some agency, mm-hmm. not just as indigenous people having agency, but that the places themselves have some agency. How might we think of places as having very complex and, and storied histories? So who were the first peoples of these places? Um, where are they now? What are they doing? Do they still reside in those places? What kind of legacy uh, do they have with that particular place? And this is maybe your town, maybe your county, maybe even thinking in terms of your state or province. So I allowed students to be somewhat flexible with this. And what came out was really diverse responses and deep reflection, really profound reflection, thinking about, again, an opportunity to denaturalize what in the U.S. and and I think in Canada, too, has seemed like a kind of unending unending inevitable project, right? The, the, The colonial projects here are indefinite and they're static and that there's no possibility for change. And so this assignment actually challenges that. Mm -hmm. Thinks, well, there's these colonial projects are relatively short lived compared to the histories of these, these lands themselves. And so how might we think about these transitions the changes that these lands have experienced, the changes in power between indigenous peoples and settler communities, and even think about the possibilities for collaboration in the future between indigenous peoples and settlers to redefine power, redefine polity, uh, redefine how the land is cared for. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why it's important, I think, to... um, even center land as having agency in this discussion is because it shifts the, dis- the discussion from one of like property and ownership of land to stewardship of land. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean to live in a polity? Is it really driven by the <laughs> um, 
the exploitation of resources for the sake of capital? Or is it really to um, live in accordance with the land's actual needs and and the land's actual identity? (laughs) It's so this... This assignment does multiple things. I think it helps students reflect on their own relationship with those lands, their own positionality in terms of uh, power, Mm -hmm. uh, privilege, access to resources, and their relationship to indigenous peoples. And then thinking about the land ultimately. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Um, This has been a really, really provocative and fascinating talk. And you've really uh, shown how the study of religion has the potential to transform students. So thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate this conversation. I'm looking forward to hearing more. Thank you to Natalie for sharing so much with us that day and for speaking so honestly about your teaching. We wish you well as you continue to learn and grow as a teacher. Thank you also so much for listening and being here with us for this conversation. For reference to the resources that we discussed in this episode, please be sure to check our show notes. Natalie gave us some great resources, articles, and books that we could all be referencing. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to our podcast, The Circled Square. This has been a really rich conversation, and we would love to hear from you. Your questions about decolonial and anti-colonial teaching. Are there ways that you are approaching anti-colonial pedagogies or indigenizing your curriculum? Please get in touch. We'd love to know. More broadly, we'd also love to hear from you. So get in touch through our website, drop us a line, send us an email, find us on Facebook. Let us know about your teaching practice or your current questions about teaching in Buddhist studies. A very big special thanks to our creative director, Dr. Betsy Moss, who's in charge of making these podcasts here in Toronto. Thank you for listening. Be well. Be well.